I think um, we've already explained our position. Um, look, I'm just looking forward to his next fight, but ultimately, whether we've been warranted, and I've said we've been warranted, he's completely out of contract. He's not breached any contractual obligation at all. And unless they come to an understanding that it has or it hasn't, that's the, that's the first, that's the point of call. That's what they need to, to come to together on. I think, as I said, we've explained our position. We, we've done everything that we feel that we could have done and waited as long as we could have done. Um, but ultimately, Lawrence has warranted, believes, 100%. Otherwise, I'm sure he would have settled by now that he has not broken any contract or any contractual obligation. And uh, we have to take his word, his lawyer's word, in writing, legally indemnified, to the point where, you know, that's, that I, it doesn't seem like he's broken any contract. And welcome back to the number one podcast in the sport where the YouTubers are now some of the best promoters in boxing. And I'm not making this up. So first things first, Happy New Year. And for everybody listening, I hope 2023 is a better year than 2022. A lot of that will be up to you, what you do, and how you choose to react to setbacks. So my advice for 2023, guys, take every little win that you can. You know, back to that old adage of even if you just make your bed, bank that as a win. If you get out of your house when you don't want to, you have a conversation when you didn't think you would, bank all of these as a win because over 360 odd days, you know, it all adds up. So let's let's try and get more out of this year than we did last year because that's how we live. But I do genuinely want the best for everybody listening to this in 2023. Look, Start of the new year, so it's only right that I actually talk boxing for a change. I think I've had a few episodes where I've talked more news than boxing. So I just want to start off with the PBC card from, from Saturday night because I don't think we get these sorts of cards in the UK anymore. But if you just look at the names that anchor that card, you go down the list in terms of importance. You've got Javante Tank Davis, um, universally agreed to be one of the true stars of boxing. You got Jerome Ennis, probably that next wave of boxing superstars. You know, a guy who you believe can win multiple belts in multiple weight classes, right? We can, we can agree on that. And then you had Rashidi Ellis, a kid who was making all the right noises, but you weren't sure about. So it's okay, we need to see him tested. And then you had the, the comeback of sorts with Demetrius Andrade. You know, I think this was actually his, probably his first fight at super middleweight. So you had a look at him thinking, well, is he in line for Canelo or is John Ryder in line for Canelo? But you've got that sort of eye on it in terms of what would Andre be doing against someone like a John Ryder? So you had that level of interest from a, a card perspective. But then you had the return of Lamont Peterson at, what, 38, 39 years old? And remember, he's the guy who, who beat Amir Khan, uh, rather controversially so, and then I think he failed a test for testosterone, but it turned out that he'd been supplementing for years. But one of those unusual stories of coming back, but I guess he's from the DC area and the card was held at the Capital One Arena in DC. So, you know, if you're going to give it a go, that's probably the best place to do it. But yeah, he was probably ill-advised to do so. This isn't a sport that forgives lengthy breaks from the ring. 
But you look at that card, and then I think you had, what was the lady's name, Mia Ellis, from a, from a woman's perspective. She was on the card as well. So you, you had the right mix of fights. And if that was a, if that was a Sky card on free to TV, we'd be licking our chops. But I want to start with, with Mia Ellis, because, you know, for all the praise we give some of these PBC cards, we've got to also talk about bullshit matchmaking, right? And Mia Ellis versus Kate Doolan or Doolin looked shocking. First round stoppage, uh, Kate Doolin's 47 years old. Where the hell do you dig her up from? That was an absolute scandal. Now, Mia Ellis looked good. Um, definitely got that DC style, like Tank Davis has that DMV style of just full extension in the punches and forward momentum with them. Uh, I mean, her, her ability when she punches to load and release, which means that there's no energy wasted between punches, that's all impressive. But you're a 22-year-old young woman fighting a 47-year-old woman who wasn't good at her best. So this is a 47-year-old journeyman who's been boxing for God knows how long, 15, 16 years, and never been that good. That was a shocking piece of matchmaking because, look, they're at Super Feather. Super Feather, lightweight, in that space there is where all the action is. You can find a viable opponent to showcase uh, Mia Ellis, because I think Mia Ellis is talented. I, I don't know if we'll get her over here, but I look at her, I look at Caroline Dubois, and I go, talent-wise, gap's kind of close. But is she going to get that push? And are we going to start talking in those terms? Are we going to start you know, looking at her to be hunting down the, the Baumgardners and the Michaela Mayers of this world? But I thought just, you know, on, on, as much as you can judge a first-round performance, she looked nasty, she looked mean, but it was... It was absolutely embarrassing matchmaking, to be honest. <laughs> In terms of Demetrius Andre, Demetrius Andre did Demetrius Andre things. How else do you describe him as a boxer? He did Demetrius Andre things, long arms, southpaw, punches from horrible positions, nasty looking punches. Uh, just, just a, he's a horrible guy to be in the mix with, especially if you're trying to box with him. I always go back to when I saw Demetrius Andrade in Gleason's, he'd just come down for sparring. And the thing I took away then, and I still believe in now, was just, he's just a horrible guy in the ring. Just horrible. He, he really, really wants to hurt you. Really wants to hurt you. And yeah, you assume in boxing, everyone wants to hurt you. No, 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 no. It's, it's deep in him. So poor old Demon Nicholson, he didn't know what was hitting him from where, how and why. He, he looked... Bewildered, he was tough by all means, but eventually Andre got to him, dropped him twice in the 10th round. So comfortable win for Demetrius Andre, but he shouldn't be in 10 rounders at the stage in his career. He's coming up to 15 years as a pro. So when does he get his shot? If you look at the rankings at the moment, I think they're putting Daniel Jacobs, John Ryder and Canelo above him. Could you see a fight with Danny Jacobs? Why not? But Danny would want the money. Andre's not a big draw, so where do you put that fight on a card? Could Andre fight John Ryder here? Yeah, we'd come out and watch that. That's a horrible fight for John. I don't, I don't know if John does well in that one because Andre's got the sort of southpaw style that is just horrible for everyone, even if you are a southpaw. You know, we all know what he's like in that, that first four rounds when he's lightning quick and savage. And if you, But normally if you can outlast that, you can then get to another four rounds where he has to slow down and regroup before he then goes again. 
But from my perspective, he's in that, that who needs him club, which is unfortunate because you want to see how good he can be. And I just, I don't think guys like Canelo really want that. And we can criticize Andre as much as we want to say he's boring, but he hurts people. He really, really hurts people. And that's why people won't jump in the ring with him. He's a horrible, horrible guy to go up against. And just unfortunate. Unfortunate that the the boxing gods have kind of conspired against him. But that's what I'd say. Good, good win for him to, to be coming back to. Um, don't know where he goes next. But would like to see him against John Ryder, to be honest with you. The fight, the fight I found really interesting was the, the Rashidi Ellis fight because if you think about Rashidi Ellis's career up to date, and most people probably haven't followed his career, but he's been quietly on the rise over the last, probably definitely the last three years. He's been on that rise and he sort of found himself in that, that hinterland. So if you break down the welterweights, there's kind of the, your Errol Spencers, your Terence Crawfords, I'm going to put Keith Thurman in there out of respect for who and what he is. If Danny Garcia comes down, he's there. There's a kind of bracket of guys yeah, who are there. And you can include Jerome Ennis and Virgil Ortiz as far as I'm concerned because I think they're justified in saying they're world level. Rashidi Ellis was in that next group. That next group that kind of gave you a, a Jose Cito Lopez feel to them or a prime Lamont Peterson feel to them where you're like, you fight for world titles, but you might come up short against someone who's special, right? But we didn't really know that with Rashidi Ellis. We didn't know really where he was. So he fights a guy, Royman Villa. Um, nondescript opponent, and I don't say that disrespectfully, but not, not a Joseph Cito Lopez. So not a guy who's going to give us an indicator. And I think if you break it down, like first four or five rounds, Rashidi Ellis is like, oh, this is easy. And that can all, that, that's always dangerous for a fighter. When, when a fighter hasn't had to go through adversity in that early part of the fight, one of two things is true. Either he's just miles better than the guy and this is just going to be a routine win or that guy's waiting to come on strong. So you already know the second half might be a lot harder than the first half. And that can, all, that can sap your confidence and that can make you tentative. Now, whether that's the case with Rashidi Ellis, I don't know. But it looked like Villa or Villa was getting to him. And you could see from round five onwards, he started to get his distance. He started to get his range. He started to make those punches mean something. And as Rashidi Ellis started to get tired, and I don't know if that was a physical tiredness or mental tiredness, Villa caught, caught the hell up with him. Like, caught the hell up with that guy he really he really <laughs> you know you're watching Veer and you get that kind of Mauricio Lara feel to him the punches just start to feel heavy it, it, in a not too distant way it felt like the Carl Froch versus Jermaine Taylor fight where you know they've both gone herring off on the scorecards and then the fitter stronger harder man has kind of taken over and there was no response back and when there's no response back, you kind of know that the gods are in your favor. And Via dropped him twice. Um, think, yeah, I think it was a majority decision win. But if you actually take the two, the two knockdowns away, it would have been a majority decision to Rashidi Ellis, which wouldn't have been impressive either, to be honest with you. So it wasn't like it was a dominant performance where he, he won loads and loads of rounds and it was just the knockdowns. He, 
be he would have squeaked by regardless. So I don't think it's back to the drawing board per se, but it is you know time for a bit of introspection and ask yourself: Are you missing sessions? Are you doing everything you can to be fit and ready at that level? If you aspire to be great, then I think you're meant to handily deal with guys like Royman Veer. Uh, so now to the fight that seems to have divided most people in boxing that wish to share an opinion. And that was Jerome Ennis versus Karen, uh, I don't know, what's the surname? Chug Hadzian? Guess, I'm just going to say Karen from now on. But I did try my best. Now, up until this point, if you look at Jerome Ennis's record, it's got a lot of filler opponents and not filler as in demeaning who they are. Like they're all good names, but they weren't the traditional step-up names. And that's down to a number of reasons. One, like you haven't had the people like the Thurmans and the Broners for Jerome Ennis to go through. And I think if he had fought those guys um, in the last two years, we'd feel differently about him. We still feel he's talented, but unproven, right? That's how we feel. And this fight wasn't going to advance the discussion one way or the other. The thing was, he had basically laid waste to everyone who had stepped in the ring with him up until this point. And for me, with my boxing head on, I'm always like, I want to see someone go the 12. And the reason I want to see someone go the 12 is, I want to know what you were like for extended periods of time when it ain't going your way. Do you still have the concentration and the hunger to keep plugging away for that opening? Do you have the discipline to go round after round doing everything you've trained? And that's more mental than physical, by the way. Like A lot of people think it's about how many hills you run up and down. It's actually not. It's really about where your head is. Are you focusing on the right things? You know, that's the key thing. It's let me expend my energy on things that will drive value in the ring for me. A lot of people don't do that. They think about other stuff. Oh my God, what if, I, what if my gas tank empties? What if I... And that negativity can start to eat away at you. So going 12 rounds is never a bad thing. It, it will clear a lot of things in your mind from, from the things I've seen. So Joanne Ennis goes, he goes the distance. It's an easy fight for him. Uh, but fans are disappointed that he didn't stop the guy. Um, Karen did not come to fight. It was, it was, that was a moral victory for Karen. It's like, well, I didn't get stopped. That's a win for me. Because his record isn't that spectacular either. He's, he's kind of worked his way through his range of European sort of, we'll call them prime journeymen, right? So guys who are good, but you'll never see them get a push for a title. And so after these 12 rounds, I'm looking at Jerome Ennis and I'm like, what have I learned? And the answer is absolutely nothing. And I maintain this. You're not going to see the best of Jerome Ennis until someone comes to take him on. Because the more you try and take him on, the more openings you're going to leave. And then his ability to counter, coupled with his natural power, that's going to be a game changer. What's certain is Jerome Ennis is a guy who's going to win multiple belts and multiple weight classes. There isn't a debate about that. Let's not, let's not pretend there's an alternate reality where this isn't the case. He will. And he's that talented. But... I don't know if he can have another filler opponent now. So I think now is the time when you say, right, Keith, get back in shape. Or if Broner does well, AB, we need you at 147 to fight Ennis. That's what we need now. And I think he's deserved it. Or, you know, if, 
if they can get past this Virgil Ortiz fight with Stanionios, make that fight happen. But give Ennis a fight where we can now start to acknowledge him as the incoming heir to the 147 crown. Well, if we're being honest, those sorts of fights, they don't do Jerome Ennis any favours. It's not... What's he going to show? That he's patient? We've seen that. That he's good at picking his punches? We know that. Hiring IQ? We know that. He can hit hard? We know that. We want to know what he's like in adversity. Yeah. Fans get behind boxers when they see them conquer adversity. So that's what we need next. So hopefully we get that. And for me, it has to be this year. I think this is this is his breakout year. If it doesn't happen this year, I don't know if it will. Which leads us nicely onto a guy who has already broken through. Um, I think a guy who, if he's, he, he's got to be one of the top five boxing attractions now. I'm trying to think, who would you put above him? Maybe Fury, Joshua, I don't think you can argue those two. Wilder, Canelo. And then I think you're putting Tank in there. I think, yeah, between Wilder and Tank, the most important boxers right now. And uh, Tank takes on, he took on Hector Garcia, right? Uh, we knew Hector Garcia was solid, um, not quite Tank's level, but who is? I think Tank's, Tank's a generational talent. But as always, Tank's just giving up every advantage, isn't he? Because really, if, if he lived the life and trained well, he'd still be a featherweight. Maybe super feather at a push. And here he is playing with bigger boys, causing havoc. And look, when I watch Tank, the thing I see about it, I see this in Tank and I like it. And I can only compare it to the Ingle guys I saw up close and personal in the gym. Because when people say to me, what is the Ingle style? And I argue, is it really a style or is it a set of ideas? I think it's more a set of ideas that were expressed by vastly different personalities. So for me, at the kind of make it up as you go along end would have been Naz. And then at the super structured, super repetitive, just do what you've been drilled to do, you had Johnny Nelson. And then somewhere in that middle ground, you've got a Kell Brook. And then to the left of Kell, you'd probably have Ryan Rhodes. And then it's like, where would you put Tank on that spectrum? Because he's got an ingleness to him. And like there were guys in the ingle gym that could box like Tank. If if Kel if Kel had the same punch mechanics, he'd look a lot like Tank Davis. But Kel's a bit more upright when he boxes and maybe not as bouncy as Tank is. But here's what I love about Tank. And I think a lot more people need to implement this in what they do in terms of boxing. He generates forward force when he punches. And I know that sounds ridiculous because you're like, well, all punches go forward. Yes, but if you watch how most people are taught to box, once you've planted your feet, you're taught to pivot about that point, right? That's how most people box. So I, I get into position, I get my shots off, then I get out of position. That's how most people in Britain are taught. Get in, get your shots off, get out. Nice and simple. Here's where Tank upsets the apple cart, and I quite like this. 
when he's in savage mode, his punches are moving forward with the body. So his whole mass comes behind the shot. And that equalizes a lot of things because as a naturally smaller guy, he needs the advantage. So he almost turns himself into a missile. But he does it in such a way that he minimizes the, the risk of getting it wrong. So if you look at how he punches, he extends so much. He rotates so much. He pulls himself out the way of a counter. Whereas if he was more upright and a little bit stiffer when he threw his shots, he'd get counted a lot more. But it allows him to generate that forward momentum and that whip. That's very, very hard to counter. Now, I'm not going to say which boxing coach I was talking to, but it got very, very heated because I, I'm a big believer in most of what you do in boxing in terms of the damage you can inflict is about how much force you generate into the ground. Like, because there's other guys like, you got to be light on your feet. And I was like, no, you don't. You have to be explosive on your feet. You have to, don't be heavy, but don't be light either because then you're not going to generate anything unless you're just bigger and stronger than the other guy. So it's about that force production. And I tend to find that guys who can really dig can also run pretty fast. And then I went back and I remembered Tank Davis did a video. I think it was like they were all training and they had to run up these steps. And you could see that Tank can absolutely fly. And I realized there's no coincidence that his ability to generate force through the foot and to shoot it forward is not only advantageous when he's running, but it's also advantageous when he's punching. Now, how you go on to coach that and do that, <laughs> I still need to figure that out. But if a lot more British coaches focused on force production, um, ground contact, and what happens with the feet when they hit the ground, I think you'd have guys with heavier hands and you'd, you'd have a more dynamic fight like you do with Tank Davis. And that's what was really, really impressive with Tank was how much force he's able to generate in those shots. And it can't just be a muscle thing, like in terms of, oh, he's this super strong kid. It has to be that, that thing of he knows how to coordinate everything. And it was a joy to watch that, if I'm being honest with you. I was thoroughly impressed with how he was able to do that. And then when you saw what he did in the eighth round, like he threw that, that left hand that literally just shut off um, things Hector Garcia, just shut him off. And he wasn't the same after that. And credit to him for surviving that because that was bad. It was also credit to, to Javante Davis for for not jumping in on that because he could have done, but he, he took a step back and went, I know he's hurt. And they just worked their way through to the end of the round. He didn't come back out. And then we got the, the backflip off the top rope. If I'm, if I'm tanks manager, I'm banning that because that looks like an ACL tear ready to happen. But look, we're always going to be asked this question. Where does he sit against Ryan Garcia, Teofimo Lopez and Devin Haney? I think he's the best of the lot. And I argue with my friend about this, who thinks it's Devin Haney. I think it's Tank, and here's why. I think Tank can go any way. He's got that, that, that savage beast in him, that dog in him, so he can stay in the middle of the ring and have a, a trade-off on the inside. He can snipe and he can shoot, as we've seen before. So he can do that. He can get you on timing. Or he can just grind you down and break you down like he did in this fight. What we have to give him credit for is that patience he had. 
of I'm going to get to you at some point. But in the meantime, I'm going to keep breaking down little things that you're relying on and that are giving you confidence. So now your ribs hurt a bit more. Um, your breastbone hurts a bit more. That left shoulder hurts a bit more. Your nose is stinging a bit. Your eyes starting to hurt. And he kept doing these little things that were just draining that power bar of Garcia. And then round eight happened and you saw all the good work came in the end. And would he have got that had he been rushing? I don't think he would have. But he was more surgical than we've seen him before. And I think that's a scary development in terms of people who want to fight him. Now, if they're talking about Ryan Garcia fighting this version of Tank, I think it's incredibly hard because... Ryan Garcia relies on those sort of lulls in action so he can explode into action. Tank doesn't give you that. Luke Campbell did. Luke Campbell gave Ryan Garcia thinking time and gave him opportunities to size the opportunity. Yeah, gave him opportunities to size the target up. Tank's not going to give you that. If you ever notice, as soon as Tank gets into range, he'll dip one way or the other, but he'll always dip just that little bit that will have you go, oh, he's changed something. And when you react to that change, bang, he hits you. All those things. That's a sign of an elite boxer. And consider the issues he had around the, the, the since retracted allegations of domestic abuse and domestic violence, that he was able to keep his head clear enough to execute the way he did. That just shows like you're dealing with someone who's pretty elite. And all we can hope is he finds that discipline and focus to maximize his talent and his potential because I think he's, he's a generational talent. So it's 100% right to, to praise that PBC card. Uh, is it Tom Brown who promoted that? But we know it's Al, really. And kudos to them for that. I think that's a really good card. Who, who knows what anyone got paid? Not our business, but we were entertained. I wish we got more of that. And the real test for that's going to be the Lee Wood versus Mauricio Lara card. You know, I give her in a hard time and I'm going to give her in a hard time later on in this episode, but making Lee Wood versus Mauricio Lara is a big feather in the cap. Kudos to him for that. And how do you, we don't have enough of that. Look at Lee Wood a year ago. Who did he fight? Uh, it was Conlon, wasn't it? Fight of the year. As dramatic a fight as you could hope for. Like, that's, that, that's a rocky moment for, for anyone. And, and if that becomes a moment that defines your career, you're not too upset with that. Now, we were all clamoring for the rematch. And Lee was like, what do I need it for? And I was of the view, like, just give the fans what they want. But if you're not going to fight Mick Conlon because you're fighting Mauricio Lara... <laughs> You ain't going to hear a peep out of me. Like, kudos to you. That's literally out of the frying pan into the fire. And, you know, the fact that he has the ambition to do that, the fact that Eddie's got the gumption to make that happen, credit where credit's due. We want to find out how good Lara was. Then it will tell us how good Warrington was. Because I'd have taken Lee Wood versus Warrington if that had been on the cards as well. But that's a, that's a fight that gives me hope because... We're going to go from Eubank versus Smith. Fantastic. That car's looking strong. Then we're going to go into Yard versus Baturbiev, which, once again, you've got to give Yard credit. He's not going to do this the easy way 
in his quest to win a world title. And then, what, three weeks later, we've got Lee Wood versus Mauricio Lara. That's, that's a decent run. And we still don't know what's going to be packaged around the, the open dates in that situation. But you have to give Matchroom credit because if you said to me which one's going to do the bigger numbers in terms of a live gate, I think it's close. I genuinely think it's close between Liverpool and Nottingham. But it will do its numbers. It may not do a good footprint in terms of screen time, but in terms of an event, it will do its numbers. So one of the times I am going to tip my hat off to Matchroom and say, hey, you got this one right. Now... Let's not let that mask the deeper problems that Matchroom face. And it comes down to this, like in, in corporate speak, you call, it, you call it a key man risk. And the key man risk essentially is just this idea that your business is so concentrated in one person that if that one person leaves or if they screw up, your whole business is affected. And I think this is what we're seeing with Eddie Hearn. The last 12 months haven't been good for him. Now, I'm going to call what I'm saying now speculation. It's come from sources that I'm okay listening to. But it's still speculation. Because I talked about this at the end of 2021. I said, the zone are likely to slash the budget for Matchroom. And say, from now on, if it's not pay-per-view, you got to come before the committee and explain why we should spend this money. And, you know, I got called crazy and what do I know? But you saw the quality of shows they did last year that were free to wear. They were terrible. This year, they're going to start off stronger, but we'll see how long they can sustain that for. But I'd question. I would question where a lot of this matchroom money is going because I'm still baffled. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I don't believe for one second Sky Nicholson sells 500 tickets in this country. I don't. I don't care how many Australians are here. Sky Nicholson doesn't sell 500 tickets in this country. And that's not her fault, by the way. She probably would do in Australia. But she doesn't do 500 tickets in this country. So how is she generating enough money that she's got a a sponsored car and she's being flown to the United States, she's being flown to Australia, she's being flown to the Middle East. Like, she's travelled as much as Eddie Hearn has since she signed. So I come back to this question. Where's the return on investment? She's not shifting tickets, and she's not shifting subscriptions because most boxes are like, oh, Sky Nicholson, good luck to her. Not then. This isn't meant to be disrespectful towards her. It's just a question of if you're not generating that kind of money, how are you able to be on a plane all the time? I feel the same way about Alicia Baumgartner. I felt the same way about Michaela Mayer. These people don't move the needle. How are we paying for all of this? Who's paying for it? At least with Ebony Bridges, we might point to an OnlyFans profile and say, well, at least she's trying to cover her own costs here. But if you worked for DAZN and you saw this, you'd be asking the same question. Eddie, why have you got all of your mates over in Cleveland? What are they all doing here? When it was Ramirez versus Bivol. All those people that were there, I refuse to believe they paid for it themselves. 
So if I'm disowned, I'm looking at, you guys are just burning through our cash here. And so I imagine what they've done is they've cut the budget again. And they said, nope, we're going to cut the budget again. And like I said, we can call this speculation and I'm transposing what situations I've been in that are broadly similar. Where you thought you were going to generate X, you haven't. They cut the budget and they say, well, find a way to make this amount of money work. And if you do and you need more, then come back to us. And that's where Hearn is. Canelo's going to be important because of the pay-per-view cash. Joshua winning is essential for this model because of that pay-per-view cash. But everything else you're going to see will just be a bit rinky-dink. You know, it will be places like the Nottingham Arena. It will be places like the Wembley Arena. You're not going to see many O2 fights or many stadium fights. And for now, I'm okay with that. If Hearn needs to rebuild, let him rebuild. But he has to be honest about that and say... Man, I'm in the rebuilding phase, but I've got my, my backside kicked for the last year and a half. Not, not to mention the money he lost over COVID, which was understandable too. But I keep coming back round to this point where the zone are looking past Eddie now because they're like, we've had our Eddie Hearn experiment for what, nearly five years? It hasn't delivered what we thought it would. So he needs help. That means we need to put more money into Oscar. We need to put more money into this KSI thing. And we need to broaden our penetration across geographies and across demographics. Right? That, that's what you're saying in this meeting. And you're saying, Eddie Hearn's a man in his mid-40s. Great hair, great beard, dresses like someone's embarrassing dad. He's not the guy we had a few years ago. Neither is Oscar. They're appealing to this demographic who will always buy subscriptions. Whether Eddie or Oscar here, because men of their age group tend to love to watch sport. That's their relaxation and their kind of escape. The KSI thing is to draw that new blood in. Those guys who in 10 years time will become the Eddie Hearn generation. So Hearn's become increasingly irrelevant, mainly because he doesn't have that, that roster anymore. You remember he'd just reel off names and he'd go, Joshua. You'd be like, whew, money there. Dillian White, whew, there's loads of money there. Jasora, whew, still money in him. Yeah, you'd go off with that. And then he'd be like, yeah, I think Bartzi can sell out the O2. You're like, yeah, okay, okay. Katie Taylor, okay, from the women's side, yeah, okay. And he'd go down this list and you'd just be like, okay. Even a Josh Warrington, you're like, well, at least he's got Yorkshire locked down. And over the years, that's just disappeared. It's crumbled. And his, his brigade of girlfriends, all these guys on Twitter who criticize me for talking about him, or, you know, his girlfriends, his, the guys who breastfeed off him, essentially. They get upset. But I always say, go back to... When Yard lost to Lyndon Arthur, and I said, I think Frank's finished. I said, Frank's finished. This cupboard is bare. There's nothing in here. He's done. And I was adamant. I was probably too strong. And Frank rebuilt. Didn't talk too much. He rebuilt. Now it helped having Fury there to anchor the ship in the time. But he rebuilt. And we put up with nonsense card after nonsense card. And we kept watching because he was telling us, look, everyone's going to come back. 
Meanwhile, we didn't realize he was in the midst of Operation Get Hearn. So he said, well, while I'm rebuilding, I'm going to get everyone else not to work with Eddie so I can catch up. A couple of years later, now Frank's back at it. There's no shame in going back to rebuild, but right now, Eddie Hearn's trying to hang on to that, that pole position. I don't think he is in pole position the way that he used to be. Like he can't just do fights on his terms when he wants, and he can't ignore opponents anymore. So when people say, why, why are you so sensitive? Why have you always got to talk about Eddie being irrelevant? I'm like, I'm not saying he's irrelevant to boxing. Like there are loads of boxing fans that will still breastfeed at the teat of Eddie Hearn because boxing only makes sense to them through Eddie Hearn. They are him. They are the, the beer betting and boobs sort of guys. Yeah, that's what they are. They're, 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 they're the guys you can sell Carling to. That's how I describe it. You can sell Carling to these guys that love Eddie Hearn because they're not discerning about anything. You know, I get a hard time of, oh, why did you dig about Here's why. In boxing, he is relevant. Like, his opinion still matters. Because a lot of what we take for granted now, he brought through. And we tip our hat off to him. Commercially, he is no longer relevant to the zone. He is no longer relevant to the zone because he hasn't brought anyone new through. They already had access to Joshua through international syndication. Sky only has a limited reach. DAZN could pick up the slack. They already had commercial access to him. So if you wanted to watch Joshua, you already had to jump on DAZN to watch him in certain countries. Same with Canelo. They already had Canelo. A lot of these guys they already had. Hearn hasn't brought anyone new that has legit star power. Now, he may do that with Bam Rodriguez, and if he does, kudos to him. He may do it with Mauricio Lara. If he does, kudos to him. Devin Haney may come back, and that'll be kudos. But the harsh reality of it is, he's not commercially relevant to the zone. He's not going to double the subscriber base. He isn't. And that's why they signed the five-year deal with Misfits and KSI. Because now it's like, how do we penetrate this demographic that Hearn has zero visibility in? So they give KSI a five-year deal. Six events a year, two of them have to be pay-per-view. Yeah? Boxing. Boxing. They gave KSI a five-year deal to put on boxing events first thing I'm going to say is if I am a boxing trainer right now I'm figuring out a way to get in on that because if the zone throwing money at it you may as well go and get your money forget pride, forget everything, go get your money that's right now and I, if I'm state of mind if I'm jab boxing, shouts out to Josh Burnham, shouts out to Sean Earls and everyone else. I mean, shouts out to those guys. If I'm those guys, right? If I'm Don Charles, if I'm Raph at Royal Resistance, if I'm Richie at Royal Resistance, I'm getting in on this KSI thing now. I'm like, Yo, give me the guys. Whatever you need to get ready, give me the guys. Cut me that check. 
Because the owner put money behind this. And here's why. Yeah? Here's why. I sat for years saying to people, Hearn's not as popular as people believe he is. Outside of the boxing bubble, nobody gives a toss about Eddie Hearn. That's why he doesn't have his own talk show. That's why he's not televised. That's why he's not on a league of their own. That's why he's not on Gogglebox. That's why he's not on Question Time. That's why he's not on anything mainstream because the public have no idea who he is. Same with Frank Warren. The same with Ben Shalom. No one has an idea who these guys are unless they're connected to boxing. KSI launched an energy drink, a hydration drink, in a cheap plastic bottle with brightly colored wrapping, whatever you want to call it, around the edge, called it Prime, nearly shut down the world. Nearly shut down the world. A man who doesn't need the mainstream, he doesn't have to go to the BBC. He is seen by more people than the cast of EastEnders. KSI legitimately moves markets. And his thing is visible. He doesn't have to come and pretend about numbers we will never see. Look how much they were selling bottles of Prime for. That's not down to great product formulation. That's not down to amazing marketing. That's someone who's built a brand in a way that, like I said, I said this before, rewrote the rules of marketing. You can't go to Harvard Business School and learn to do what KSI did. You will in five years, but it'll be too late by then. And zone have seen that and they've said, we want that. He brings his own audience with him. If we can get his audience to subscribe, we're good. And that's when they realized Hearn's audience isn't real. Those IFL numbers weren't real. And when you try and triangulate the real number around Eddie Hearn, I'm sure you get somewhere south of whatever it is now, whatever the perception is. Like I said, Eddie Hearn appeals to the people that buy Carling. So when I say he's irrelevant, I don't mean he's irrelevant to boxing. I'm not a guy that's going to diminish what he's achieved in the last decade. I'm just saying commercially, he's not relevant to DAZN because they're looking elsewhere. They're trusting Oscar with the American operation more and more so. And they're trusting, uh, what's his name? KSI with more of the UK and just the crossover. They just want his audience. And that's the important thing here. Jesus, apologies. I um, just had a hamstring cramp, so <laughs> you, don't, you don't want that. Don't wish that on my worst enemy. It's, is there a scarier cramp than the hamstring cramp? If there is, please tell me. But no, no, so back to all of this. I don't know how this ends for Eddie Hearn. I think this year will dictate a lot. If Canelo were to lose again and Joshua were to lose again, hmm, it's rough. It's rough. And at that point, I think he, he might look for a way out. Just set up his operation and go, right, let me go and do something else. And the thing he chooses to do may actually make him more relevant to society. I don't know. 
but right now these are very very choppy waters for him and if you are a boxer signed to match him like an Anthony Fowler you're like I don't know if this is doing anything for me commercially I might have to jump onto Sky even if it's to be an opponent I mean that reach is a lot greater but these are the but this always happens when we're in that kind of age of empires and you know, shifting sands of change. This is generally what happens. But that's, yeah. That's a lot to get through in in a first session back. Um, you know, there's other stuff I want to touch on, but it doesn't feel like a natural fit with, with the way this episode has gone. So I want to tap out at this point and then you might get, you might get part two within 24 hours. 